mindfulness mode 422. I was a bad kid. So I went and got a, a dozen eggs and I started throwing them at the game. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome to another episode of Mindfulness Mode. I'm Bruce Langford, creator of the podcast, so I'm so glad to have you here. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I just want to thank you for all the messages and stories you've been sending me. You can always reach me by email at bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. I've had quite a few Mindful Tribers asking if I'd set up a membership group. So I've been thinking a lot about it. I'm going to put together a group Uh, mindfulness mode membership group stay tuned because the first people to jump into the membership group will be privileged members i'll be creating exclusive content just for you if you've jumped into this opportunity now on another topic i used to have some trouble sleeping my mind would just go crazy i'd think of so many ideas and and i'd be laying there in the middle of the night that was challenging to deal with any of you have that issue at all Well, a lot of people have found a solution and that solution I'm talking about is the the sleep meditation that I've recorded and it will help you fall asleep fast. At least that's what a lot of my listeners have said who have used this meditation. You can check it out. Download it for free at mindfulnessmode.com slash sleep. Now today's guest I'll tell you, you are in for a treat. He's, he's produced movies. He's currently doing a Broadway show. He helps seniors. He's a family man. He's just go, go, go. He's doing so many different projects and achieved so much in his life. And mindfulness is certainly a huge part of everything he does. Sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to today's terrific interview. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I have a fantastic guest today that I can't wait to talk to him all about the many, many things that he's done. I have with us Dwayne J. Clark. Dwayne, are you in mindfulness mode today? I hope so. I meditated this morning. That's good. So you're off to a good start. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, Dwayne, I want to share a little bit about you with my audience. Dwayne J. Clark is a serial entrepreneur and he runs one of the United States premier assisted living communities with over 30 locations, 2,000 staff members, and over 60,000 residents are served there. Dwayne is a philanthropist who supports more than 70, get this, 70 local and global charities and has founded four of his own. He's also an award-winning film producer and author, and his newest book that he's been working on is called 30 Summers More, Live Now, Live Well, and live long, and it's going to be released coming up in June. So, Dwayne, it's great to have you on the show today. Dwayne, what does mindfulness mean to you? It's a great question. I'm honored to be on your show. I think, you know, the, the issue of mindfulness, I, I think, has a lot to do with being present. And, uh, you know, we, my wife and I have almost nine grandchildren. We're expecting one here any day now. And, you know, I give my grandchildren a bad time because they want to bring their iPads to dinner or their iPhones to dinner. And I said, just look me at the eye and just just be present. Just be mindful that we're having a great interaction of energy here together. And uh, that's very difficult for these young people to do because uh, I think we're conditioning uh, a tribe of, of people that have a very hard time connecting with people. So I, I like this concept of mindfulness about being present with each other and exchanging energy. Well, you're very mindful about seniors. I, I'm very interested in what got you involved with this passion that you wanted to help seniors to live a better life. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was raised in a, in a single family. Uh, my mom was a uh, raised me and her mother came and lived with us. And uh, uh, probably about the time I was five years old, she came to live with us. And, and uh, when she was, uh, when I was about 11, she fell and broke her hip. Mm. And this was a woman who was uh, ahead of her time. You know, she spoke three or four languages. She ran uh, her own business in the 1930s. Um, she uh, had 13 children. Um, she was really an incredible person. But when she went in those days, they went into a nursing home in the 70s. When she went to this nursing home, all of a sudden she lost her personality. She lost 
her humanity. She lost who she was as this prideful woman. And I can remember, you know, as a young lad, 11, 12 years old, sitting there in her room and people would come in and they would treat her in a way that I felt was disrespectful. Not the same way you would treat your neighbor. First of all, you know, they just walk in and out of her room, didn't matter if she was sleeping, you know, half undressed, whatever, without showing the dignity that I felt she deserved. And I think that left an indelible impression on me about how I wanted to treat what I call, you know, one of our most treasured, you know, treasured uh, humanitarians is our elderly, that they are the oracles of our time. And so uh, when I was 26, my sister said, hey, you should get involved in senior housing. I'm on the, an advisory board for this one company. I said, oh, at that time I was working in the criminal justice system. I'd, uh, uh, you know, I thought I wanted to become a criminal defense attorney. I said, you know, I, I don't know anything about old people. I know about bank robbers and, you know, uh, you know, people who have done bad things and drug dealers. I don't know anything about elderly. She goes, well, go down to the library. This is 1985 before the age of computers. She said, go down to the library and read this study called The Grade of America. Now, this thing was, you know, huge. It was bigger than the New York phone book. And, you know, so I went down there and read it. And I went, oh, my God, the, the whole world is aging. And people are going to live longer and longer and longer. And this, this is a huge industry. And so that's how I got in it and worked for two other companies before starting Aegis in 97. And it's, uh, it, it, I, I feel blessed. It's been an incredible journey for me uh, and allowed me to do many, many other things, even beyond senior housing. How did you feel when you opened that first location? Can, can we go back to that point in time? Yeah, I think it's a mixture. You know, as you introduced me, I'm a serial entrepreneur. So it's a mixture of giddiness um, and fear. Um, you know, I, I know Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks. And I once asked him how he felt about opening the first Starbucks. And he said, you know, you open and you're wondering, is any, and he was working as the barista. He's like, is anyone going to come? You know, I have this concept. Is anyone going to come? That's kind of how I felt. You know, it's like, okay, I've opened this. Now, is anyone going to come and, and you know, see what I've created here? And you know, the, our first property was a tremendous success and filled almost overnight. And, you know, we're, we're very blessed and have gone on to do, you know, dozens of communities now. Well, here in Canada, I know that uh, some are are supported by the government and others you pay, you know, you pay for yourself if you want to go into those. What's the situation in the United States with your facilities? Well, it's not as progressive as Canada. You know, the, the health system is prim primarily dominated by private pay. So um, so ours is a private pay system. And uh, what most people do is use their 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 uh, house equity to, to, to pay for their care. Our residents live two to three years in our buildings. And so we're really caring for people in the last few years of their life, which we feel honored to do. Right. I see. I see. What makes your facilities different than others that are out there? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think Bruce, one of the things that, that I, uh, really was insisted on when I started this company is that we were incredibly service oriented organization and living in Seattle, you know, it's, it's an entrepreneurial town, but it's also an incredible service town. So people don't understand that Starbucks started here. Amazon started here. Microsoft started here. Nordstrom started here. You know, you can go down the list on and on and on Expedia. And it's, uh, you know, we're a serial entrepreneur town, but what makes us so good is the way we look at service. And so I knew that I wanted to be an incredibly uh, service intense company. And I knew if I did that, I would have to bring in people from other industries. So my, my senior team, I mean, my chief people officer was one of the heads of HR at Amazon. My head of marketing was one of the two senior people at Nordstrom's. My uh, outgoing president, she's retiring here in a month, was the first marketing head of marketing for Starbucks. My incoming uh, president was the president of Starbucks North America and about 100, oversaw 182,000 staff. Um, our CFO is from the Gates Foundation. So we didn't recreate the industry. We didn't recreate things that, uh, 
you know, we didn't feel had a great outcome. And so we knew if we wanted to be better, we had to bring in kind of what I call the fabric to make the quilt. And each of these people were bringing their own culture from these companies. And, you know, we, we have a very different fabric culture. You know, we were last year in 2017, we were nominated the best, uh, one of the top 50 companies for Glassdoor out of almost 700,000 companies to work for. Uh, the same organization voted us as a top 15 company in the nation for work-life balance. Um, we've been voted 11 or 12 times best company to work for by various publications. So I think, you know, the CEO has to be mindful, if you will, about, you know, what you do to create a special culture. And that's one of the things uh, we're very proud of. In our, in, our, in our corporate office, we have a meditation float pod in our corporate office. You're not going to see that in many places because we want people to go and be able to relax and wind down and, you know, get the stress out of their life and so on. So in, in the middle of our office, we have a, a float pod in a special room that you can go in there for free and, and, you know, do your own little float pod meditation. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That is, I haven't heard that from very many people. Well, I was just going to ask you what you have personally learned about mindfulness by focusing on seniors with this company. Well, I think, you know, one of the things uh, that I try to do um, is bring about wellness uh, ideas and issues. And I, I'm fortunate that I've traveled to over 80 countries. I was just in Iceland last week was my 82nd country. And um, so I get to observe people all over the world and what their cultures do and how they live long and so on. Now, Iceland, uh, the men in Iceland lived to over 81 years old. So it's the longest uh, age span for anyone in Europe. And so you look at the things they do. And, you know, so uh, I found myself throwing myself into doing a lot of crazy things. I was in, out floated in the Blue Lagoon in 26 degree weather in the middle of a hailstorm thinking, okay, is this why men in Iceland live to 81? Because it's not that comfortable. Um, so, I, you know, one of the reasons I wrote 30 Summers More is, I, I tried to pick up all these practices from all over the country. Um, you know, I'm very influenced by meditation. I think, I think as Americans and particularly as CEOs or teachers or, um, you know, whatever uh, your, your job is, our minds are very busy today. And, you know, that's why I love your, your mindfulness mode. I, I tell people that our minds are, you know, it's kind of like a garage that, that holds three cars, but we constantly try to pack seven cars into it. And, you know, they don't fit in very conveniently. So they're often stacked on each other and kind of in a mishmash way. That's how our brains are. In fact, in the book, I developed this term called fire brain, um, where, you know, you think about things all day long and, you know, you maybe watch something violent on TV and you and your wife have a disagreement and you go to bed and your brain's on fire. It's all these things that you're thinking about. And that causes a variety of issues. I mean, a variety of health issues. Um, you don't get the restful sleep you need. You don't get the deep sleep you need. You don't get the REM sleep you need. You don't excrete the bad cells, the diet in, in your body. So, you know, one of the things that I do to prevent that is meditation because that's, that's a clearing of the brain. And I try to encourage my staff to do it, my residents to do it, and so on. So, you know, that's the book is chock full of those ideas. I was visiting Japan um, a few years ago with my son, and I was talking to an elderly person. And I was asking, I always ask them what their tips on longevity. She goes, I drink a glass of water in the morning. I go, what, what, what's the big deal about that? And she goes, no, every morning before my feet hit the ground, I have a glass of water, about 12 ounces, that's... Um, room temperature, that before I go to the bathroom, I drink this glass of water. And so I started doing the science on it, the research on it, talking to doctors and researchers about it. And what I found was your body needs seven hours of sleep to regenerate the new cells, but then the dead cells that are in your body, unless they're flushed out, stay and remain in your body and can do bad things to you because what gives you Alzheimer's, could give you cancer and so on. So what, what do most people do in our country? They, their feet hit the ground, they go to the bathroom, and then the first thing they do is drink a huge cup of coffee. Now, mm -hmm. the, the average person during the night will lose 15 to 20 ounces of fluid. And what do you do? You replenish it with coffee. Well, co coffee dehydrates you. 
Right. So th- when I talked to this Japanese woman, she said, that will clear up your brain fog. So I started doing this, drinking 12, 14 ounces of, of, of room temperature water. My, my day was completely different. The brain fog alleviated. Uh, I had more energy. It started my metabolism. I started to lose weight. So little simple you know, tricks like this. And, you know, then I found out people in Japan have been doing this for a hundred years. So little, little simple tips like this can really change your world, change your body, change your mind. Well, that's pretty fantastic. And I know you're all about living well and living long, and that's part of the subtitle of your book. Tell me more about your book and what, what got you into writing this book called 30 Summers More. Yeah. uh, You know, I've cared for about 60,000 people over the course of my career. And so one of the things that um, I thought was, would be interesting to kind of, uh, you know, do some kind of chronology of all these people and see why they left, why they lived to this age, you know? And I, I think I have some wisdom about that over the last 30 some years. And so I'd started writing this book five years ago and about four or five months into it, I had this horrible medical issue. I had a, a gastrointestinal bleed and ended up in the hospital. And uh, I told my wife, I said, you know, bring my manuscript in and I'll work on it in the hospital. And, it was, a, it was a pretty severe situation. They thought they were going to have to do a blood transfusion and everything and maybe possibly surgery. And I started reading this book and I thought, wow, this isn't about, you know, the people that, that I've cared for. This is about me. This is about right. the wisdom that I have for every 40, 50, 60 year old and saying, hey, we don't have infinite amount of time on this planet. You know, and at that time I said, I probably got 30 good summers more, you know. And sure. so what can I teach people um, that, you know, myself having this medical epiphany, what can I teach people? And so I got on the train. I lost almost 50 pounds. I, um, I ate differently. You know, I started picking up all these tips. I exercised differently. Um, I even changed the kind of television I watched and what time I watched it. Um, my sleep patterns, I became more acutely aware of those. Um, you know, everything I did down to the purpose that I had in my life, which is a big thing for longevity, um, to the relationships I had, friends I had and everything else, I recreated my life. And, um, you know, I'm 60 years old now and, um, I feel like I'm 40 years old. And so, you know, everybody thinks longevity is latched to genetics. Now I've spoke to probably 30 geneticists. No one can agree on exactly what percentage it is, but most will say it's between 18 and 23% of your longevity uh, connects with uh, your genetics. That means 75, 80% of it's within your control. So those are things that you can do to change your life, to live better, live longer, um, that you can can do today. And so that's what got me excited about it. You know, I I probably wouldn't have written this book if they said, hey, 90% of your longevity is 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 ruled by your genetics because then it's like well what's the point right you might as well eat hamburgers and french fries the rest of your life and lay on the couch but right, so you got really excited then i got excited because i thought well wow 80 82 percent of my longevity i can control so it, it, it it's been a a personal journey for me um and you know it's it's been a life changer and that's you know uh, all my books that I that I have out, it, I make no money on them. 100% of the profits go to charity. So this is not an issue where I'm looking to make a buck on it. Um, I, I'll, I, I donate all the money. and But I, what I really get jazzed up about is, is motivating people and bringing a better quality of life to them. I think that's I think that's really fantastic. Can you tell us something that you no longer eat? It's no longer part of your diet as yeah. a res, as a result of this change. Well, I, I will never say I never eat these kind of things, but I, I would never, you know, I haven't drank a, a, a soda pop in six years. You know, right. I would never do that. Sugar is, you know, I tell people if I were ever elected president of the United States, the first thing I'd outlaw is sugar. It does such damaging things to our cellular structure. Uh, the second thing, though, that I'm very mindful of, I won't say I never have it, is dairy. Um, and, and the reason for both of those issues is they're, infl- they, they, they're inflammatory based. So everything inflames your body. So, you know, if you eat sugar and dairy together, you're going to explode. And if you look at the things that kill us, 
you know, heart disease, diabetes, dementia, Alzheimer's, um, you know, various respiratory diseases. Um, all these things have a, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, all these things have a basis in, in inflammation. Um, so I live in Europe quite a bit. And so when I go to, to Europe, I eat everything that, you know, that they put in front of me. I have a very different diet in Europe, but everything comes from the field to the table there. And so, right. you know, it's not genetically, you know, processed or reformed or anything else. And so I, I will easily eat more and lose weight. I'll lose an average of three to five pounds when I go to Europe for 30 days. And I was walking in Italy one morning and uh, I couldn't sleep. I told my wife, I'm going to, I can't sleep. I'm going to go for a walk. It was about five 30 in the morning. So I'm walking down the streets of Italy and everything was closed. And there was this one little bakery that was, that was uh, a man was in there. And I said, Hey, can I get a cup of tea? He's like, Oh, come in, you know, come in. Very polite. He said, Oh, you've got to taste this bread I just made. I said, no, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to do bread. You know, I, it's, it, it has a bad effect on me. He goes, no, no, no. You're from America. This is Italian bread. It will not be the same. And so, you know, I ate the bread and in the overall, you get kind of gassy or bloaty or whatever. Yeah. And so I was talking to him about it. He goes, well, America is all about production. And because they want to get things as quick to you as possible, uh, they don't allow the yeast to go to its full fermentation because it takes too long. He said here, you know, we could have bread rice for two or three days. So what he said is, well, guess what's happening to that yeast? Guess where it's being fermented? It's being fermented in your stomach. That's, ah. that's the oven. That's why you get bloated and gas. That's why you feel bloated after right. eating this yeah. stuff. So, you know, you go to Europe and you don't have that problem because the way they, they, they let the bread rise, their wheat is totally different. You know, it's not genetically modified. All these things help. So, you know, it's, I, I've been honored to be able to travel to 82 countries and learn all these cultures and these variety of things that uh, I think are, are going to help a lot of people live a lot better lives. Is there a small town in Italy you suggest I visit that would just be amazing? Well, have you ever been to Capri? I have not, but okay. we're hoping to go to Italy soon. So that's why I'm asking. This. Well, I'll be there next week. So uh, uh, Capri is probably my favorite place, not only in Italy, in the world. So, you know, it's an island just off the coast of Napoli. Some people call it Naples in America. Uh, and it's phenomenal. It's, it's just, uh, it's beautiful. But it's only, it's only really open six months a year. So from about, uh, about now, about mid-April through 1st of October, it's, it's the most beautiful place in the world. Wow. Well, we'll have to visit there for sure. Yeah. That, that sounds awesome. Yeah. So you visited 82 countries. Well, yeah. you said 81, didn't you? Well, 82 80 last week was Iceland. Yeah. So, so thinking back, you, you said that's your favorite place to visit in the world is yeah. Italy. And uh, what was the place that surprised you the most? You know, I think uh, countries that surprised me the most are places that are impoverished, but so happy. Oh. And I think, you know, I mean, Bhutan, it was one of the happiest places in the world, but even places like Cambodia and Burma, Vietnam, um, the people are so joyful. India, people are so joyful there. And as an American, you know, you leave there thinking, I, I wonder if I got this all wrong. You know, here are these people. I mean, I can remember, uh, going into, we, we befriended this young man and uh, we were, he, he wanted to take us to his parents' house. And his parents' house was some car, corrugated metal and a dirt floor. And, um, and then they had made this kind of attic, but the whole, the whole house, if you will, was probably 120 square feet and four right. lived there. And they had this little campfire, but the dirt, they would sweep the dirt floor every day. And they would, they were so honored uh, to bring us into their home. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that we do when we travel is we have a thing called my wife and I have a, a change of life. And so we meet people, some person that, you know, that, uh, that motivates us in some way. And we try to change their life in some way, you know? And so that's, that's a habit of ours when we go on vacation and we try to, 
we try to make the place better than when we found it because I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have bad opinions of people from the U.S. especially they go there and they ravage the country and then they leave it. And um, so we're trying to dispel that myth. But last week when we were in Iceland, we helped uh, a domestic violence shelter get built. And so that's part of our our travels as well. Let's let's make the place better that we visit than than when we got there. Wow, I love that. And do you think this kind of natural happiness that you experience with some of these people, like in the country of Bhutan, or do you think this is attributed to a form of mindfulness that they come by naturally? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, uh, I can't speak for Canada, but I speak for the U S I think we get focused on the wrong things. Um, you know, because we're such an entrepreneurial country, because we're very materialistic, um, you know, look at the reality shows that are popular right now. Look at how we're polluting our kids' minds with the Kardashians. Or, I mean, I, I, I was with my grandson and he was watching, I don't even remember what the name of the show was, about, you know, a, some bride from abroad or something. You know, and I'm like, why, why are you watching this? I think, I think we focus on all the superficial, uh, very materialistic-based things. And it it sends a message about what's important in life. And so we spend a lot of time and energy and, and things. And Hey, I like nice things as much as anyone, but I think what we should really do is, is, you know, be present with people and, you know, have good rate relationships. In fact, you know, Harvard conducted the longest longevity study in the history of man. It's, it's over 80 years old now. In fact, John F. Kennedy was involved in it. And um, it started in Harvard in the early 1900s um, and when Harvard was an all-male institution. And so they've studied these people over time to say, what is the most important thing in life? And, and guess what they found? Wasn't genetics, wasn't nutrition, wasn't exercise. What they found is people at the age of 50 who were in a happy, content relationship would live as much as seven years longer than those who weren't. So... Now, I didn't say just a relationship. If you're in a miserable relationship, it works the opposite. But right. at the age of 50, and you're, if you're in the happy, content relationship, you'll live longer. So, you know, those are the things that we should, should, uh, should focus on. I, I wrote a book uh, about a year ago called The Big Life. And uh, it was meant for my grandchildren. Um, Isn't that the one where you can almost play a game yeah. while you, you read the book? It's like yeah. a game as well as a book. I love that. Tell us about that. Yeah. So what what about three or four years ago, my wife and I were talking and, you know, we've we've been successful in a variety of ways. And uh, we were doing some estate planning and we said, well, what are we going to leave our grandkids? And, you know, there's the obvious things materialistically about what you could leave them. And I said, you know, I'd love to leave them some wisdom. And I said, I think I'm going to write a book of wisdom for them. And uh, my wife's like, you know, she gives me the famous eye roll. And, uh, and, and so I thought, well, I'll kick this out in a couple of months. It took me about three years to write. And the reason, Bruce, it took me three years to write is because, um, you know, when you're sitting there and say, this is my book of wisdom. This is the book. What are the things that I want people to know that's, you know, emblematic of who I am, Right. Right. And so I kept changing stuff, you know, and I'd, I'd throw things in and I'd put them out. I'd take them in, take them out. So anyway, it took me a long time to write it. And when I, when I was done, when it was in editing, I'm a member of a group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. Now I'm the old side because once you reach 50, you go into another group. Um, and I was talking to a bunch of CEOs about this. And as I talked to them, I said, you know, this is going to be my book of wisdom for my grandchildren and so on. Some of the guys started to kind of get cloudy eyed, like tearing up. I said, man, what's, mm -hmm. what's going on for you? They go, oh, I wish my grandfather would have done this or my dad would have done this or even my mom would have done this or whoever. And so I went back and I told my staff about it. I said, you know, we think this is for more than your grandchildren. We think this can have a bigger impact. And that what if we made this into a game that got people conversing around the table or on the road trip or when they're at the beach or whatever? So we created these die that corresponds to a page in the book and you roll it and whatever you open it to, you have a conversation about this. Um, and what happened has been transformational for me. What happened is people started calling me after they got the book and said, hey, we're playing a big life. 
And I have this story about my grandfather that I've never heard before. Um, we're playing big life. And I just heard this, this story about my mom when she was 12 that I never knew before. And so what happened, Bruce, is, is again, because of technology and everything else, we stopped having these traditional conversations around the dinner table. And so the, this book is these little cues. It's not about whether you think my wisdom is brilliant or not or what it, it, it makes no you know, I, I could care less whether you think my wisdom is good or bad. But what it does is facilitate other people to have a conversation about their legacy and their family. And that's been life changing. I, I had a, a, a friend of mine who was an NFL quarterback. His wife called me and said, after we read the book, we, we talked for five hours. And I learned, you know, I've been with him for 25 years. I've learned things that I've never learned about him before. I think this is fascinating. Now, I know you produced an award-winning film called Full Court, and it's the Spencer Haywood story. What got you into that? How did you get interested in in doing that to the point that you would create a a, a movie about it? Yeah, I you know I'm a big sports guy, um, and I've been huge into sports since I was a little kid. And I, I have some friends that are in Hollywood that are actors and stuff, and they would always hit me up about their favorite project. And Dwayne, will you give me some money to do this documentary and so on? And, and I, after a while, I said, I want to do some things that are social worthy about things that I care about. And so I started this film company called True Productions. And, you know, now we're involved in our sixth film, uh, Spencer Haywood, The Full Court Story was really a, a civil rights, human rights story about a young man who was picking cotton and developed this uh, basketball talent and went into the American Basketball Association. I was trying to get in the NBA, but um, because they had rules about how much college you had to have and how long after college you could enter the NBA, he couldn't. So he actually sued the NBA and went all the way to the United States Supreme Court and they allowed him to play in the NBA, which created the pathway for everyone from Michael Jordan to Magic Johnson to LeBron James to get in early into the MBA without finishing college. And it was a landmark decision. So, and, you know, I've done, uh, I did a story about a, a Holocaust survivor called Big Sonia. That's a very popular film now. I'm doing a, 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 a film right now called The Path to Freedom. It's a civil war movie about a, a soldier that escapes, um, you know, so lots and lots of movies done one on the, the opioid uh, problem. Um, so uh, lots of good movies that, uh, that I've become passionate about and think are socially worthy. And you also founded a restaurant, which I believe is also a charity. That restaurant's the Queen Bee Cafe. Tell us about that. Yeah, we just opened our third one this week. Ah. Uh, and my, my mom, we used to joke, uh, who had a tremendous influence on me, was, we used to call her the Queen Bee. And uh, it was kind of a joke that, you know, she, she thought she was the queen. She was from Britain and so on. And so when she passed away, we wanted to do something that honored her. And so we opened this cafe that serves incredible crumpets and crumpet desserts and so on. But we wanted, we didn't want to make money on it. We gave a hundred, we give a hundred percent of the profits to charity. So um, we just, again, we just opened our first one Saturday. There were 650 people that came on the first day. Um, it just uh, was kind of overwhelming. Um, and uh, it's their tremendous success. And we're, we're building three more. So we'll have six here in the Seattle area. And it's just, it's a great thing because uh, our, our slogans, you dine, we donate, um, is, you know, it's just made for a great thing where people feel good about coming in and, uh, you know, spending their money and then it goes to a worthy cause. Tell me about a day in your life when you were seven years old. Did Was there anything that foreshadowed that you would become such a philanthropist? Well, not when we were seven years old, because we were, we were poor, poor, poor. Um, I'm a big believer in manifesting. In fact, uh, if you go in my bathroom, I have a, uh, a board that's seven feet tall and four feet wide on my bathroom wall. So when I go to use the commode, it's littered with things that are going to manifest in my life. And um, so when I'm, you know, whenever you go to the bathroom, you're sitting there staring at this wall. And um, I really believe when I was little, um, I used to, you know, have all kinds of harebrained ideas about cars that I wanted to own or the house that I wanted to own or whatever. And all those dreams have come true. Um, you know, people that I, I thought I would have staff and so on. So even as a little boy, 
I would look and I would lay I'd lay on my bed. And again, we were poor. I, you know, we would lay. There was usually not a bed. It was a mattress that was on the floor. We didn't have sheets. So you could, I mean, I can still feel the the buttons poking me in the back on this thing. Um, but you'd sit there and you'd dream. And I, I think one of the best blessings I ever had was was growing up in poverty, because uh, it was a great university to go to in terms of. Um, educating you on what you do not want to have happen in your life. And a lot of people, I, I think, kind of complain about their backgrounds or my parents didn't do this or I didn't have this as a kid or whatever. Man, I, I, I think I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I use that as rocket fuel to say, hey, I'm, I'm running as fast as I can from that lifestyle to get to where I want to be. And that's that's motivating to me. Do you have a story about bullying? Maybe you were bullied, maybe in business, or maybe you were a bully at one point in your life. Do you have a story you can share with us where mindfulness would have made a difference? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I love, first of all, Bruce, the work you've done on bullying. You know, my hat's off to you because it's it's a huge issue. And as I said in the in the pre-show, my wife, Therese, is on a board called Stand for Courage that she was a founding board member with the founder, Nicole Sievers. And they have bullying programs in all the schools. And, you know, one of their uh, things is not to give the bully an audience. Don't give them oxygen. So bullies, right. bullies are bullies because they get approval and people laugh and so on. And so they have a, they, they've developed a program that's being rolled out in school systems under Stand for Courage where they're, where they're, they're teaching these principles. But I think I've, I've been on both sides. I think, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, I, I, when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I started to kind of go off the rails. And, uh, you know, my mom wasn't home. She was a working mom. She was gone all the time. So uh, at probably about the age of 14, 15, I started to get really bad skipping school and so on. So I went to this powder puff football game one day where the girls were playing football. And I was so mad. I was angry because I was you know, I was in poverty and I didn't have the clothes that the other kids had. And I didn't have the, my mom didn't have the car that other people had. We didn't have the house. So I was angry. I was an angry kid. And so I went to this powder puff football game and here's all these beautiful girls with their beautiful parents and this beautiful lifestyle. And I, and I wanted to disrupt that, you know, I, again, I was a bad kid. So I went and got a, a dozen eggs and I started throwing them at the game, you know, uh -huh. just to be, just to be a brat. Yeah. So I was definitely a bully. And this one guy who was girlfriends with one of the boyfriend of one of the girls playing that I hit with an egg came down and we got in a fist of cuffs and, and I kind of dealt with that guy and I would say I won the fight. And, uh, you know, I went on to throwing my eggs and about, you know, 10 minutes later, this guy came and this story is in my, in one of my books about my mother called my mother, and my son. And he taps on my shoulder. And I turn around this guy, this guy was six foot four. I know him very well. I played football with him. He was the all-state tackle. He was also a Golden Glove boxer. And I thought, oh, this is not going to turn out well. And no. so we started the fight. And that's the last thing I remember is making one swing. And he hit me about 17 times before I hit the ground. Ouch. And I, I crawled home. I lived about three blocks from the stadium. I literally crawled. But no one would help me. Everyone in the stands like, you deserve that, you little, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I crawled home. I was bloody, beaten. Um, you know, I think my one of my ribs were cracked. My nose was sideways, you know. And my mom was aghast about what happened. And, and you know, I had to come clean with her. I'd been skipping school. And that was a life-changing moment because my mom took me and she put me in a private school. I lived by myself with a family 100 miles away. Um, and it was a turning point for me where I said, eh, you know, I don't think I want to be that person anymore. No. Um, the, the, the repercussions are too great. And, you know, I went on to become a Dean's list student in this private school as class president, a senior class representative, got a scholarship to go to college and everything. So sometimes, you know, uh, I, I know I was a bully. Um, and I know I have sympathy for, for the way to be. And, you know, I have a foundation called D one foundation right now, and it's, it's, uh, some of the leading high school athletes in the nation. In fact, I, I have the, the number one athlete in the nation, number one pick for high school kids for 20 class of 2020 and one of the, the top ones for 2019. And, you know, I talked to them about this because these guys, 
these guys are superstars. You know, they're, they, one kid has 37 college offers and he's 17 years old. Uh, wow. I have a six, 16 year old that has 34 college offers. And, you know, we talked to him about that. And uh, I'm very proud of one of my kids took a, took a, a Down syndrome girl to prom. And, you know, because he wanted to have compassion about, uh, you know, what what other people struggle with. And mm -hmm. so we talk a lot. I, I try to tell him my story and not to follow my trap. And, uh, you know, how that we build, uh, build compassion amongst each other. Because I think that's what we're sorely leading. I, you know, a year ago, uh, I saw the need for this group so great that I, uh, I led a march on Washington, D.C., and it was called the March for Civility. And uh, um, we had hundreds of people. We spoke from the steps of uh, the Washington or Lincoln Memorial, same place where Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech to hundreds of people. It was covered live on C-SPAN to over 8 million people. But what I was trying to, trying to do was bring back the fact that we're not civil to people anymore. We're not civil to each other. We've lost the civility. We've lost manners. We've lost courtesy. And so I brought a hundred of my staff to that march because I wanted to set an impression about this is how we need to treat each other. And I think that's one of the reasons our company has one of the best cultures in, in the country is because, you know, we have rules about civility that are important that we need to ingrain in each other. What does your personal routine look like every day? You talked about meditation. I know that you meditate, but could you tell us a little bit more about what your personal day is like? Yeah, um, I try to get as much sleep as I can. Uh, minimum, minimum for me, seven hours. Uh, seven and a half is better. Um, I usually wake up about six. Um, drink my glass of water, right. room temperature, yeah. um, and then I'll, I'll I'll go right to checking emails for you know get everything. I have a policy that I don't let an email last twenty four hours. I respond to everybody. I probably get about a hundred a day. Um, and then uh, four days a week, I'll work out. I just got a new Peloton treadmill that I absolutely love because uh, it has live feeds on there and I can join a workout or whatever. And uh, I love doing the, the Hills course. So I do that. Um, sometimes I'll be taking a call while I'm on the treadmill, believe it or not. Um, I, I'm very efficient with time because, you know, time's the only thing you can't really acquire. Right. Yeah, um, and then, um, Probably, uh, I usually have a snack before the treadmill and then breakfast after. And um, and then I probably won't go into the office till about 10 or 10.30. Because I, once I go to the office, it's over. You know, there's people want right. to talk to you. They want to duck their head in your door. They, so I can get more done in probably two hours at home than I could in six hours at the office. Then I'll go to the office. Um, I'm, I'm in the field a lot. I'll... You know, and, and I have such diverse interests. I may be working. I have a, my, my play is going to be having a reading on Broadway in November. So I'm working cool. with the theater there. What's the name of the play? Seven Ways to Get There. Um, and it's a true story. Um, it's, uh, it, it's about, uh, I went through a divorce about 20 years ago. And my counselor, while I was going through a divorce, said, you should, uh, you should go on this group that I'm in, that I'm facilitating, this men's group. And uh, I'm like, oh, I don't want to go to a men's group. And so anyway, she talked me into it, went into it. And it was the most kooky cast of characters that you could ever, you couldn't make it up. I mean, it's almost too unreal. And so I said, oh God, this should be a play. And uh, we did a play. It, it, it uh, premiered here in Seattle, was ex extremely successful, has been in three or four other houses now. And now we're trying to get it on Broadway. So, so my, my life's, you know, really different. I, I wrote a book called My Mother, My Son, that Erwin Winkler, the guy that did all the Rocky movies and, uh, you know, just did the movie Creed and Creed II, um, he contracted it to make it into a Hollywood movie. And so, you know, we're working on that. Um, so lots and lots of things going on in my life other than senior housing. Well, wow. It's, it's fascinating to talk with you. I want to move on and ask you five quick answer questions. Just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Probably my wife. My wife, uh, Teresa is probably the most mindful person. She tends to move at a different pace than I do. And she'll say, sit down, look at me, 
let's be, you know, let's be present with each other. So really helped me. Oh, that's, that's great. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? Well, I think mindfulness brings on a different level of sensitivity. You get to uh, stop your busy brain and your busy life and think of how am I impacting the people around me, the world around me. And I have a hard time with that, to be quite honest, because I, I move at a quick pace. So being mindful has to be very intentional for me. That's one of the reasons I meditate. Right. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness. You know, I was just introduced to this uh, breathing exercise that uh, my yoga instructor talked to me about. It's deep breathing. I can't remember the name of the guy. I think he's an Australian that invented it. That brings about a bunch of clarity, helps with cell reproduction and so on. So I've done that a few times. Um, I find it interesting. It's not hyperventilation kind of breathing. It's just more deep uh, hard breathing. And, um, you know, I'm open to anything that's going to improve my quality of life and make me a better person. So. Right. Well, you've written so many awesome books, but if you could recommend any other books related to mindfulness, what would they be? I don't, I don't have one off the top of my head. I'm, I'm sure as soon as I sign off, I will, I will probably think of one. I, I love books that are short that are just one or two, uh, you know, sentences that you can look and it's a reflection kind of book for your day. And right. I think, I think one of the things that's important is that you set your intention for the day that, Hey, I'm going to try to be as compassionate as I can be, or I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to reach out to a stranger and be friendly to that person. So I love these books. You know, I pick them up as you're waiting in line and you know, you see them, in the, in the grocery store or the bookstore or whatever, these little things that are 40 pages, but, you know, one or two sentences every day. Cause I, I, I think that's the kind of reading that you can say this, I can really put this into play. Yeah. I think they can really make a difference. And if you do think of a book, I'll put it in the show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. Dwayne emailed me later and said that the book that he wanted you to know about is Gratitude by Oliver Sacks. Gratitude by Oliver Sacks. Can you share an app that helps with mindfulness? And I know what you already said about phones at the dinner table and so on, but maybe there is an app that you know of that helps. Well, I had an app on my iPhone. I'm looking at it now that I haven't really used, but it's a, it's a, it's a meditation app. I'm trying to find it here. But I just find that if I enter technology into my mindfulness, it seems incongruent. And yeah. It's like, no, that's, that's, that's not the point. I can't even find it. But, you know, it was, a, it was a mindfulness app that was going to help me with meditation and to be more present. And I got so invested in looking for the app and working it properly that I wasn't present and I wasn't mindful. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, no, I'm just going to do this naturally. It's got to yeah. be part of my DNA. It's got to be part of my day. That's, you know, and so when I meditate, I meditate for 22 minutes every day. And uh, it's not 21, it's not 23, it's 22 minutes. But I know the expectation. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know the, the slot allotment that I have to have. And that's what I do. And do you set a timer for that 22 minutes? No, you know, I do Transcendental Meditation TM, which okay. has been really, really phenomenal. Um, and they, they encourage you not to set a timer. That you, your mind will get trained about when, now, you know, I, I may look at 18 minutes to say, oh, I got four more minutes or whatever. But, um, you know, and some days I have fire brain going on and I'll wake up yeah. five, minutes, five times before it's 22 minutes. And then sometimes I'll wake up and it's like, wow, it's been 22 minutes, you know. So, um, but it's, it's deep. So that, that's, uh, and again, it, it, it gets the seven car, seven cars out of the three car garage, you know, so my brain can function. Yeah. How, how long ago did you start TM? I've been doing TM about two years. I've done meditation for over 30 years, but um, I took a TM class because I, everybody, all my friends and a lot of actors that I know were doing it. And they said, oh man, this is just, this is how I keep on my game. And, you know, I have a goal of being a CEO into my eighties. And so I was asking everybody what they did and I actually started talking to some physicians about it. One heart surgeon was telling me it's 50% more effective for heart patients than medication. And I'm like, how can that be? You know? And as I started looking at the science of meditation, I just found, wow. And what's the downside? You know, 
you close your eyes and you meditate for, you know, with a mantra for, for 20 minutes, there's no side effects. There's no risk. So, you know, you kind of ask yourself, well, why wouldn't I do this? And, you know, I, I lead sessions with my staff and try to get them to meditate. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge believer in meditation. Well, I am too. And I meditate every morning for 20 minutes and I find it, it's just amazing. Like there aren't even words for some of the, the ways I'd like to express the difference. It's, it's just incredible. Well, you can be found at DwayneJClark.com. And I know that's D-W-A-Y-N-E. And don't forget the J, Dwayne J. Clark. There's no E on the Clark either. DwayneJClark.com. And this book that's coming out, 30 summers more. I can't wait. It's coming out mid-June. So that's really exciting. It has been exciting to have you on the show, Dwayne. Thank you so much. Oh, Chris, it's been a pleasure. And again, thanks thanks for how you're walking in the world and doing all this effort around bullying and everything else. It's uh, it, you're, you're to be commended. So I appreciate you. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that and appreciate you. So all the best to you. Bye now. All right. Bye-bye, Bruce. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember what I mentioned at the top of the show, this sleep naturally guided meditation that I have for you just for Mindful Tribe members. It's to help you receive the deep, easy sleep that you deserve. Sleep naturally and you'll be able to fall asleep easily, get more work done tomorrow and feel better about it. Rest comfortably without effort. Go to mindfulnessmode.com slash sleep for your free download. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.